0: Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. The first time it happened to me, I was eight years old. After a whole day of fishing with my dad on cold Long Island, we drive the boat back to the dock. Now, not tying it up yet, my dad stepped off the boat and said, Hey, I'm going to go grab something from the car and I'll be back in a minute. Well, 30 seconds turned into a minute turned into two minutes and i'm getting restless i'm barely a person at this age just one giant ball of energy add and fire so i'm getting bored i start jumping from cushion to cushion nailing these fucking jumps i'm basically young parkour tony hawk over here let's escalate I stand on the edge of the boat and I jump onto the cushions, crushing it. I am hell. And for my final performance, I decide I want to balance on the edge of the boat as long as I can and then leap into the middle seat. So I'm up there balancing reincarnated gymnast from a past life until I slip. I grab the dock to catch myself. And I do. I catch myself. That was close. But then, as I'm pushing myself back into the boat, the floor moves. Oh, wait. There isn't a floor. The floor is a boat. What started as me leaning a little bit and touching the dock is turning into me leaning more and more and more. Oh, fuck. The boat is not tied up, and it is floating out to sea. But even worse, I'm about to fall in the fucking cold water. I am one second away, from pitching into the water and i make a call abandoned ship by this time i'm almost parallel to the water almost under the dock and about to get soaked and then all of a sudden time slows down everything is in full color i feel the cool sea breeze on my face i notice the barnacles under the dock i have time to calculate by the time my dad comes back i can probably be up on the dock get the boat be back in the boat and he won't even know and i feel No fear, just a heightened sense of things. So I leap off the boat, trying to fucking hold on to the edge of the dock. But I misjudge it. The distance, the boat, it's going out to sea. I'm above the dock, I'm rising, I'm parallel. Oh fuck, I'm now below the dock. I am about to splash into the water. And like a monkey wrapped around its mom or that weirdly sexual scene from The Notebook in a last ditch effort. I see one of those posts that hold up the dock. Midair, I change course. I reach out with both my arms and my legs, and I wrap them both around the pole, holding the dock. My butt, one foot away from the cold water, completely under the dock. But I stick like a tennis ball to Velcro. I yell, Dad! And my dad comes running back, thinking there's an emergency, and he sees the boat, fucking drifting out to sea, and his son... Somehow stuck under the dock like a fucking barnacle yelling for help. And I'll tell you, my dad, he fucking laughs at me. He bends down, picks me up, tears coming down his face. My son is an idiot. There's no chance he ever goes to college. Fuck, I better start getting these trade schools ready. He walks me along the dock, we get the boat, and I'm so scared and he's so amused. I don't even get in trouble. But that memory, time slowing down a split second life or death that seemed to extend an eternity that memory it stayed with me the next time it happened I was 12. I was the goalie on the world's shittiest soccer team which meant since we didn't have a defense I was the defense and my only positive attribute which did go a long way was being willing to sacrifice my body for the team but as the season went on I made more and more saves. I got more and more practiced. And I noticed the same thing. When the opponent was on a fast break coming at me, time would slow down. I could predict where the ball was going. I knew exactly what to do. I'd dive at their feet. I'd grab the ball. They'd flip over my body and crash to the ground like a fucking crash test dummy, sometimes even cry. And the secret is, the goalie never gets, like, yellow cards because, you know, he's the goalie. He's helpless. Or I'd see somebody take a shot. You know, they're trying to kick the ball into the goal. The ball's screaming up towards the upper 90% of the net. In soccer terms, upper 90 is pretty cool. And I'd leap hands outstretched and pluck the ball out of the air time was meaningless i was in complete command there wasn't even a chance that the ball could go in the net i could do this for a thousand years and finally the most pronounced memory for me when you know i realized there was something going on here i was maybe 16 or 17 and the first thing i got really good at was taekwondo like i was i had flashes of greatness as a goalie but like dude i just was willing to break both my fucking legs rather than lose but taekwondo i got good and so testing once every six months uh as you got more advanced you know once every two years or whatever you know you had to do testing and so testing usually consisted of uh, forms which is like memorized movements that i always kind of hated but now i realize that they're like the 80 20 of teaching martial arts got it Uh, board breaking so smash the boards and I was I was a fan of that and then sparring and so testing sparring was different because Taekwondo has this curriculum this vocabulary you know a sidekick a spin sidekick a jump spin sidekick a 360 sidekick you know those are all the same thing and so at testing sparring you have to show that you have full command of Taekwondo so where you know purely self-defense Chin down, hands up, start boxing, maybe throw a sidekick. Testing sparring, you need to put yourself at risk. You need to show that, look, I can kick your ass while still doing a jump spin sidekick. It's flashy. It's unnecessary. And and testing for my second degree, um, there were five rounds of sparring. And I think the last two rounds were against two people, which is way harder. And it's two people. And it's not like I, you know, am allowed to just start fucking knocking bitches out. I've got to like, show my command of taekwondo and so you know i gotta be really fucking clever and i had have slash definitely had at the time asthma so you know i'm <sighs> i'm just gasping for air and the people sparring you their whole job is to fuck with you you know they don't have to do any test technique they don't have to do anything they could not throw a punch the whole time they could be you know kicking you in the leg they just want to get you to break to lose your composure but I just dropped into that same zone as when I was a barnacle under the dock. I became a wraith. I engaged with the dance of death. Spacing and distance were my clothing. I wasn't even doing Taekwondo, I was expressing myself through my physical form. And I barely even got hit, even though I was doing testing sparring, and they were both were just, they were out to get me, man. And I I touched this thing again. I dropped into a mindset where time was meaningless. All there was in the world was the activity. And at the time, you know, I didn't really know what was going on, so I kind of kindled the hope that I was a god. But then, unfortunately, I read this book and I realized, holy fuck, I was experiencing flow. I looked back and I saw it everywhere. My hope that I was imbued with godlike power was replaced with wonder that we all have this ability. That, given the right environment and conditions we can use this power to learn anything faster to find meaning in life and to ultimately ascend to a level of performance that would give hercules himself a little tingle in his wiener and a flutter in his restless heart into the book so now as we walk into this uh the idea of flow has been around for 25 or 30 years and was first discovered by uh, Michaela Csiksimiha. And we've already talked about that. Uh, We've mentioned him a couple times on this here podcast. Um, You know, I'm American, and so I most rudely called him Michael Chickensack, and so that's going to continue. And uh, Mr. Chickensack, he wanted to study happiness. So he hooked up a bunch of people across multiple cultures with pagers, because, you know, he's old as hell. And at random times during the day, he would page them, or I guess it was, I'm sure it was some sort of automation, <laughs> would page them, and they would have to, like, rate, I think, on a scale of 1 to 10. How you doing, little buddy? And, and what he was hoping to find was, was what made somebody happy. But what he found was that across cultures, when people were feeling their best, they all had that same thing going on that i did at taekwondo playing goalie and being a barnacle time dropped away their performance improved they were happier more content everything was just right they were in the zone and he wrote a book that we we might cover it was basically like flow is the secret to happiness and maybe up into including the meaning of life oh and by the way you know this weird thing happens where anytime anyone's in flow they're like super fucking good at whatever they're doing but like probably nothing so that portion of flow went dormant you know flow this was this cool thing you know like hey let's paint on this paint board look at me but no one is really sure what to do with it until our boy Stephen Kotler, the hero of this story. Now, Mr. Kotler is a, a balding, maybe even bald now, a hyperactive maniac of a man. He's been on Joe Rogan before. Uh, he's a devotee of extreme sports like skiing uh, and a lifelong researcher on flow. He writes about using non-ordinary states of consciousness. Uh, he read this one, or he wrote this one book, uh, something, can't remember the title, I read it. It was basically just like, do drugs. And I'm like, oh my God, calm down, man. What the fuck? He owns the Flow Research Collective where he trains people in all domains how to become savages. And his main goal in life is to deeply understand the science behind ultimate human performance. By understanding what's going on in the brain and body when humans are performing at their best, he thinks that we can unlock some new possibilities in human potential. He's worked with special forces, Fortune 500 companies, probably even Jesus. And he has a dog rescue where he owns like 30 chihuahuas. But before all that, before he had a thousand canine servants, slabs of muscle and 50 houses, he was just an obsessive guy with a giant brain and a desire to be the best. And he looked around and he noticed something. A group of people who seemed to have figured out expert performance. But not only that, who seem to be doubling their collective skill on a year-over-year basis. And if we know anything about compound interest, that's just crazy. There might be a debate in basketball, like, is Michael Jordan or Kobe or LeBron? Like, are they the best? And, you know, there could be intelligent debate, even though Michael Jordan was years and years ago. But in this group that he started to sniff out, the new guard was so much obviously better than the old guard that it wasn't even a comparison. It was like the old breed had tiny little child hands and the new breed had a thousand man-sized hands. Something was going on. And just like Tim Ferriss finding a 13-year-old girl who can deadlift the weight that crippled Troy, mm-hmm, fuck you, Tim. He was like, huh, what the fuck is going on here? And Steven started sniffing. <laughs> How had extreme sports athletes, because that was the group, snowboarders, skiers, base jumpers, how had they 400x'd their output in the last 10 to 15 years? A transformation so dramatic. God damn it, something had to be going on. It takes a bit for this story to develop. But if you can hang with us, this might just be the thing that allows you to 10x your performance at work, in life, and ultimately achieve whatever your dark and hot desires. Preface The Why of Flow. This book is about the impossible, but it starts with the invisible. Over the last three decades, an unlikely collection of men and women have pushed human performance farther and faster than any other point in the 150,000 year history of our species. But here's the crazy part. This unprecedented flowering of human potential has taken place in plain sight, occasionally with millions of bitches watching and nobody noticed the reason because virtually all of this massively accelerated performance has occurred within the world of action and adventure sports and it just looks impossible yet what appears impossible is actually progressive behind each monumental feat is a litany of small steps history technology physical and mental training yet even this is just the beginning of all the things these athletes have accomplished nothing is more impressive than their mastery of the state known to researchers as flow so what he's saying is he's looking around he's like huh god damn it all these heifers are so fucking good and like they do drugs what's going on i love drugs maybe i can get confirmation bias and then i can like do drugs but everybody's okay with it and he's looking at professional soccer players professional basketball players and they're like you know getting a little bit better maybe there's a little star but then he's looking at these action and adventure athletes and they are evolving like pokemon as he digs and digs he realizes huh they all have a curiously graduate level understanding of flow and in flow we're so focused on the task at hand that everything else falls away action and awareness merge time flies self vanishes performance goes through the roof Every action, each decision leads effortlessly, fluidly, seamlessly to the next. It's high speed problem solving and it's being swept away by the river of ultimate performance. And flow naturally catapults you to a level you're not naturally in. Everything you do, you do better in flow. Flow is the doorway to more that most of us seek. Flow is an optimal state of consciousness a peak state where we feel our best. It's a transformation available to anyone, anywhere, provided that certain initial conditions are met. Yet here's the rub. Flow might be the most desired state on Earth, but it's also the most elusive. No one has found a reliable way to reproduce the experience of flow, let alone consistently get in it and rapidly accelerate performance until now. Quite simply, the zone is the only reason these athletes are surviving the big mountains, big waves, and big rivers. When you're pushing the limits, it's either flow or die. So what he's saying is that in the fucking world, nobody's been able to consistently like reproduce that feeling that I felt, oh my God, I'm about to fucking drown. Jump, barnacle, hold, stick. That has always just been a mystery. You know, everybody's chasing it. But every now and then, you know, hey, I just dropped into it and I couldn't miss a free throw. But there's no one that was, that's been able to figure out how to just be there all the time until now. And those people are these action and adventure sports athletes who are having this fucking meteoric rise of performance. Huh. Because ultimately, who doesn't want to know how to be their best when it matters most? You know, it's most important. The game's on the line. And you get up and you shit the bed. Do you want that? Or do you want to fucking win? To be more creative, more consumed, to soar and not to sink? Flow allows us to become kusemonos. And before flow, you know, we like our geniuses a certain way here in America. You know, we like the, the reclusive, professional Richard Feynman. You know, it was scandalous that he did go sketch and, at strip clubs, but he just liked titties, man. Thoreau, you know, he likes to chop wood and, and have no friends. Elon Musk, he's got nine kids. He's insane. There's an order to these things. There's a method. You know, you must you can be a little eccentric, but you got to fit into the establishment. What we don't want, at least not often, is genius naked spread eagled and 40 feet off the ground but that my friends is where this story begins actually it's a few days earlier the year is 1993 a 24 year old skier named shane mcconkey was putting on quite a show at the crested butte extremes and so actually i've been to crest Butte. my parents used to live there and uh fucking those i've skied that run and i actually like re-injured my back at the top of the run or very close to where he's talking about and then i had to like just just man my way back down the mountain and then i was like just drinking shit loads of rum during the day for seven days over spring break long ago um so i know exactly where he's talking about so this 24 year old dude is putting on a show at the crested butte extremes this extreme terrain that they only open when there's enough snow and within a decade mcconkey would become one of the most beloved and revered athletes in the world. A dual sport master of the impossible, one of the greatest skiers to have ever lived, and one of the most innovative skydivers in history. And on this particular day, there was some action sports photographer, last name Winter, first name Who Cares, and he wanted to film McConkie doing some tricks. So McConkie speeds out, and he's going fast, he's going off a cliff, and he's like, hey, I'm going to do a double backflip. A few things should be mentioned. The first... Is in 1993, no one was actually doing double backflips, and definitely not off 40-foot cliffs. So he's like, "Let me do something that no one can ever do off a cliff." The second was that neither was McConkey. See, Shane, he actually did one and a half rotations, and he landed on his head. That photographer Winter was like, "Uh, holy shit, this guy's gonna kill himself." But Shane. He kept demanding another shot. He's like, let me do it, man. I've done this a hundred times. I slipped. I was nervous. You're so attractive. And then finally, he convinced him. Winter was like, God, this dude is actually going to die. And then I'm going to have to like fake emotions when I get interviewed on the news. Please don't try this again. Please don't try this again. But hey, McConkie was like, shut up. And he's going to do it again. Winter heard the countdown. three, two. One, but that's when it happened. McConkey blazed off the cliff, wearing nothing but his ski boots. He did not throw a backflip. Instead, he paraded his penis around. He threw what would soon be known as his signature—a giant, naked, spread eagle in the air. What can I say? Winter asks. It was fucking genius. But genius. It usually doesn't open its taint at 40 feet above the earth what does genius look like for a snowboarder a skydiver how can we tell if a particular surfer is doing original work how do we find it well we all seem to agree that genius begins with feats of mental greatness it takes courage to push past the confines of culture and an athlete their canvas is their body which is to say in the world of action and adventure sports the easiest way to hunt genius is to look for those athletes consistently betting their asses on the impossible. So he's like, how do, man, how do we find you know, it's easy to see, okay, standardized test. Good job. You got a you got an A plus on the SAT. You're still gonna fail. Um, but, you know, you look at that and you're like, oh I guess guess that guy's a genius and he definitely needs to lift, but whatever. But then you look at a snowboarder, you're like, how do you how do you tell if they're a genius? And Mr. Kotler, he says, Well you look at the people who've been consistently doing fucking crazy shit that everybody thought would kill them, double backflip off a 40-foot cliff, achieving it, improving, getting better, getting better, and betting their ass on it every time. And this is where things start to get strange. Because quite a few asses have been on the line these last two decades. You know, not long ago, the idea of anyone jumping a motorcycle over a bunch of school buses was so incredible that the whole world tuned in every time Evil Knievel did it. These days on any given weekend in arenas all over the world you can watch fat dads jumping similar distance only back flipping as they do it 25 years ago in skiing a 360 was just about the hardest trick anyone could throw today six-year-old kids do it in their sleep along the way world records have been broken and broken again many of these records no one thought should even exist records that were beyond the pale impossible kayakers paddling straight down an actual fucking waterfall and this flourishing is happening in action and adventure sports all the while the never-ending pussification of traditional sports marches on you know the nfl is like you can't hit them too hard you're gonna hurt their head it's like well i'll switch them i'll i'll get paid 20 million dollars at the risk that my head gets hurt in this day and age The upper echelon, echelon, goddammit that word's hard, the upper enchilada of adventure sports athletes are grappling with the fundamental properties of the universe, gravity, velocity, and sanity. There's a natural urge to compare athletes to athletes, but trying to compare a guy like Shane McConkie to a guy like Kobe Bryant misses the mark entirely. McConkie's got more in common with 14th century Spanish explorers than anyone playing on on the hardwood. You wanna compare these athletes to someone? Well, you gotta start with Ferdinand Magellan. But even if you start with Magellan, comparisons are problematic. Because for all of human history, our ancestors have performed how our ancestors performed. At no period in history did we add an extra foot to our vertical jump between generations. And then, then another foot between the next generation. You know, your, your great-great-great-grandson's going to be a grasshopper. Uh-uh, never happened. But in the world of high adrenaline, it did. Examples are helpful. So in diving, uh, so you know, like you jump off the thing, you go in the water, you flip around, wee! And uh, in 1904, some American eye doctor took gold in the Olympics because he did a double front somersault. Holy shit. Today, a reverse four and a half occupies a similar spot which i don't know what that means i'm assuming like some sort of spinning a lot uh, but a, a large improvement but over a hundred years now compare that to the last decade of big air skiing in 1999 here's some guy who did a 720 oh my god so crazy 10 years later someone took silver in a competition with a double cork 1620 think about that for a moment though so diving took a full century to add 900 degrees to its tally but skiers somehow push, pushed their total up 1640 degrees in slightly less than a decade that is insane but it wasn't just found in skiing it was also found in snowboarding also motocross and the central mystery is how was any of this possible why at the tail end of the 20th century in the early portion of the 21st Are we seeing such a multi-sport assault on reality? The past 30 years have witnessed unprecedented growth in what researchers now call ultimate human performance. Over the last 30 years in the world of action and adventure sports, in situations where asses really were on the line, the bounds of the possible have been pushed further and faster than ever before in human history. We've seen near-exponential growth, ultimate human performance and this brings us to one final question where if anywhere do our actual limits lie great question thanks for asking if you really want to understand the question of limits you have to go back to december 23rd 1994 the day the game changed the epicenter of this shift was mavericks a dark gray beast of a wave Located two miles off of Pillar Point in dark, shark-infested waters. Giant fucking waves. Death. Fire. Typically, you know, if you wanted to search surf giant waves, you need to go to Hawaii. But Maverick you know, was first discovered in 1962 by some fucker who was insane. He paddled out, then he surfed Mavericks alone for 15 years. But when he finally took a visitor, word started to leak out. Uh, rumors... Start to drift up and down the coast about a mysterious surf break that generated thick grinding barrels large enough to drive a bus through and all the hawaii people were like uh-uh doesn't exist man only on the island but in december 1994 after a monstrous storm sent furious pulses down the california coast three of hawaii's best surfers they were like eh, we'll test out this mavericks bullshit i'm sure it's stupid One of these fuckers, named Fu, was also a fame hound. Everybody knew about him, and he made sure everybody knew how awesome he was. So by the time word got out that three surfing Tiger Woods would be making the trip to California, who nobody actually thought had any big waves, so it's probably a waste, but like, you know what, let's just show up just to see. Maybe someone will get stabbed. It's California, who knows? a helicopter, a news crew, and three boats had turned out to watch them surf. They get out there, all three Tiger Woods, you know, the morning's underwhelming, some big waves, but you know, nothing that cool, (laughs) ha ha, Hawaii's better. But this all changed a few minutes before noon. Black lines appeared on the horizon, which I think means a giant fucking wave. The events that would make the day famous were only horrible moments away. The gentleman, from Hawaii wasted no time. Fu, the fame hound, he dropped in, which I don't know anything about surfing. I assume that means like he enters the wave. Ironically, the wave wasn't even that much by local standards. Faces there have measured 80 feet in size, the size of an apartment building. This one was merely a house. But surf legend Buzzy Trent, what a name, Says that the best waves are not measured in feet and inches; they are measured in increments of fear. So even though this wasn't the, the tallest wave, there's something going on here. You know, if you get a if you get a shopping cart hitting you in the knees at super speed, it doesn't matter. It's not that tall. You don't have any legs anymore, son. At Mavericks, no matter the size, the waves are the stuff of nightmares. The hydraulics are ridiculous. In seconds, the wave can radically change shape, wall, drop, lift, kink, shimmy, whatever that means. Lots of cool different verbs. I don't know. In this particular case, the wave jacked up and the bottom fell out. I think that's bad. In the resulting chop, foo, dug a rail. Again, I don't know. I think it's probably when you're like, you know, when you're using the lawnmower and it gets it gets stuck and then you smash into it and then you got kind of like a 3rd nipple looking scar next to your chest. Maybe. Um... But Fu dug a rail and pitched himself headfirst into hell. The curl caught him, snatching him up, hurling him over the falls. In the photographs of the event, because remember, they had a camera crew. Fu can be seen just then in ghostly silhouette trapped inside the very belly of the beast. These photographs are the last time anyone saw Mark Fu alive. His body was found an hour later floating face down in the water outside the harbor entrance so think about that word of his death traveled fast and far everyone was fucking shocked you know california didn't even have waves basically everybody knew and then this tiger woods comes around it's basically like it's like a high school football team just killed tom brady like what this team is this team must be incredibly good it was without question the most public moment in surf history It was also something of an I told you so moment. Because these days, scientists consider the fear of death the fundamental human motivator, the most primary of drives. But then Mark Fu died. So everybody should look and be like, okay, Tom Brady just got killed at this high school. I'm never going to play him again. But Mark Fu, he was a household name. He was a baller. When he died, that plausible deniability died with him. And so what he's saying is that like, there had been people who died before, but they were always they were always kind of shitty. It's like, well, yeah, okay, of course, like Ned died. I mean, dude, that guy sucked at surfing. They're like, I don't know, that seems pretty crazy. But then Tom Brady got killed, so everybody's like, "Fuck, this shit's actually dangerous." And what you'd expect is that athletes realizing their lives were on the line, they should have started backing away. They should have been like, uh, nope, no thanks, not interested." But that's not what happened. Not even close because right now, in the world, more people are risking their lives for their sports than ever before in history. It's not often that death is told so clearly to fuck off. This recent upswing and gleeful wanton abandon pushes hard and challenges fundamental notions in psychology, philosophy, and biology. This then is the gauntlet thrown by the likes of Mark Fu and Shane McConkie, the very far frontier The razor's edge of our knowledge. The uneasy and somewhat spiritual truth that, for every burgeoning segment of the human population, these sports are really worth dying for. It's 1996. I live in Korea. Maybe at this exact moment, I'm actually at my friend's house taking a full crap in my pants. But gymnastics, it's also going on. The Olympics. The Russians are dominant, and it looks like they might win oh then the u.s pulls ahead but then we start sucking we lose a commanding lead it's now neck and neck three different girls fuck up it's now all on some girl named carrie strug she's their last hope and she just kind of like sprained her ankle too one last attempt it all comes down to this and apparently Carrie kind of sucks, and the journalists have like written mean things about her before, so like, hey, you know, well, the whole fucking fate of the war rests on the guy that I have seen him chugging old fashions at 10 a.m. Fuck. But Carrie steps up, and she fucking kills it. She basically breaks her ankle, but not before taking home gold. And and this vault, it's considered one of the greatest moments in, in gymnastics history. And that's cool, I guess, but that's basically pussy shit compared to a fellow named Danny Way. Danny Way, he wasn't no sophisticated gymnast, he ain't wearing no leotard. In fact, you probably haven't heard of him. Unless you're a serious skateboarding devotee, you probably don't know what he did on July 12th, 2005. So let's return to Strug's final vault. Think about a similar set of circumstances. But instead of having a bad sprain, ow, oh, my ankle, the ankle shattered. And the knee, the knee that attaches to the ankle bone, you know, that connects to the hip bone, woo, 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 that knee is fucked. The equivalent of having to climb 10 flights of, a, of stairs on a broken bone before you can even do your little gymnastics flipping crap. The pain is agonizing. But you get to the top, it's even worse. The launch pad is a wobbly platform a couple hundred feet off the ground. No safety nets, any fall could be fatal. Now, hopefully you're beginning to understand what Danny Wei was up against when he attempted to jump the Great Wall of China on a skateboard. Danny Wei, considered by many to be the greatest skateboarder of all time, he first introduced the world to the MEGA RAMP, all caps, in 2003 in his skate movie, The DC Video. What a good name. Uh, There's some apparently some Australian guys like, Mate, it's many times what I've ever seen, mate, it's crazy. So, the Mega Ramp, that's how he's jumping across the uh, fucking Great Wall of China. That's, that's crazy, according to an Australian. In 2004, Wei convinced the X Games to make the Mega Ramp the center of the competition. He took home gold. Then, just by chance, he was on a flight. I think he was probably skateboarding in China or something. And like seeing his first titty in the wild and knowing the world would never be the same, he saw it. The Great Wall. The Great Wall of China. And he knew he had to jump it. And so, of course, he was like, I'm doing it. And they're like, doing what? You're not even allowed in China, son? I'm like, no, I'm doing it. He's like, I'm jumping the wall. And they're like, well, where do you want to jump? Like, this is a pretty small spot. And he's like, I want to pick the widest part of the wall. And so he gets a, so they, like, he convinces his team to do this. And, you know, they, like, do some introductory measurements. And, uh, but they mess, they fuck it up. You know they don't know how to do math and so he's back in the states and he gets a call on his satellite satellite phone from the architect because he hired an architect to build the mega ramp smart good move and the guy's like hey dude um i kind of fucked it up like you're gonna have to actually do 70 feet more uh are you i mean isn't that just too gnarly without even pausing to think danny says no nothing's too gnarly when it was done the mega ramp was actually extremely gnarly the size of an olympic ski jump there was no margin for error but here's the thing skaters make errors it just happens and so way is going to jump the great wall of china on that and so way uh, he details how he does all this for the zone you know because because um you know, stephen was like hey why the fuck are you doing this man like you're paying money to do this it's Explain to me the economic rationale for this. And he's like, I do this for the zone. A zone where my vision fades away. Everything goes silent. Everything slows down. It's the most peaceful state I've ever known. As long as I know the feeling is coming, I'll keep going. And way, he keeps going. So he gets there. He gets to the top of the ramp. He's like an obese man testing the strength of a diving board. He jumps on it a little bit. And it fucking wiggles. <sighs> Not good. A couple years earlier, a BMX rider tried to jump the wall, fucked it up, hit a mountain, and died. Despite all this, Wei decides to take a practice run. It'll be his only one. And see, Wei, he trained in the desert where the air was thin. In China, the humidity was different, thicker, more Chinese. The denser atmosphere slows him down. He underjumps, he pancakes, he ragdolls more than 50 feet. Like an old bag of mooshu pork being thrown down a playground, he is fucked up. His ankle's fractured, his ACL is torn, his steering foot swollen beyond belief. But Danny Way, Danny Way doesn't give a fuck about reason or thoughts. And all he knows is that a samurai picks the most dangerous option. Anything else is worse than dying a dog's death because that was the practice run 24 hours later barely able to walk the adrenaline's worn off he's just in pain sitting there like what the hell am i doing way climbs the 10 flights of stairs moving slowly his breathing labored he hangs his head in what looks like defeat at the top he paces like a caged animal millions of people hold their breath he's gonna do it on a broken ankle fucked up knee and grapefruit foot Finally, it's time. He raises his hand in a one-arm salute, weirdly similar to the forbidden German gesture, and he shifts his weight forward. One Mississippi. Two Mississippi. It takes five painfully long seconds for him to hit the edge of the jump. Five seconds later, it's over. Danny Wei, under ridiculously adverse conditions, just became the first person to leap the Great Wall of China on a skateboard. And if this was a typical athlete, that would be really good. Like, great. Great job, little buddy. Now get me some hydrocodone. But see, Danny Way, he doesn't skate for records or fame. He skates because it's his fucking way. Thus, with nothing left to prove, but his life still on the line, Danny Way drags his fucking crippled body back up 10 more stories, and this time jumps across the Great Wall of China, and he throws a 360. Then, just to make sure no one doubted who has the biggest dick, he did three more tries, and he got them all. Travis Pastrana, a noted maniac, says, On that ramp, with totally healthy limbs, Danny's risking his life. But he destroyed his steering foot and knee. If either ankle or knee gives out a fraction of an inch, he's going to fly off the side and die. Most people can't even stand on a broken ankle. Danny not not only stood, he withstood four G's of pressure five times in a row. And forget about the external pressure. What about the internal? See, Danny Way actually is is afraid of heights. One of his managers says, you know, they'll be like scouting places. They'll be up high and Danny Way will turn white as a sheet. Terrified, he can't wait to get down. But to keep... That fear at bay, 200 feet on a wobbly ramp, to have the confidence to make the run on a broken leg, and the last guy who tried died? How is any of that possible? Well, to start where most start, the psychological, the undisputed fact that the ghosts that hunt for Danny Way are unremitting. What a good sentence, dog. Good job. The ghosts of his injured brother, his alcoholic mother, his dead father, his dead stepfather, his first coach, the man who saved him from himself, T-boned at a stoplight and also dead, his best friend in jail for murder, oops, his broken neck, his broken back, his anger, his pride, a relentless roar, only truly silenced by the salvation of The Edge. The Edge is the one place these ghosts can't follow. But that's only part of it. That's the, that's the why. Okay, so that's why Danny Wei is fucking leaping over the Great Wall of China. He's trying to, like, deal with himself. But that tells us very little about the how. And and Wei, he feels the same. You want to know how I did something like jump the Great Wall of China on a broken ankle? I can't really answer that. All I can tell you is what I've already told you. When I'm pushing the edge, skating beyond my abilities, it's always a meditation in the zone. This, then, is our answer. This is our mystery. A rare and radical state of consciousness where the impossible becomes possible. This is the secret that action and adventure athletes like Wei have plumbed. The real reason ultimate human performance has has advanced nearly exponentially in these past few decades. The zone, quite literally, is the shortest path towards Superman. And this book is about that zone. To continue this story, we need to go back long ago to 1871. There's a fellow named Albert Heim, uh, so so he and his brothers like they'd climb mountains all the time, and uh, on this particular day, he and his brothers uh, were climbing mountains, but shit was getting crazy. There was lots of snow. They were underdressed. Should they keep going? Should they stop? Well, Albert, yeah, he was crazy too. So he did. He decided to keep pushing on, but as he lifted his leg, a gust of wind snatched his hat from his head, and Heim, you know. Living in eighteen hundreds, if you, if a man loses his hat, what the fuck is he's not even a man. So without thinking, he tries to snatch it back. Bad idea. The sudden motion unbalanced him. He fell sideways and fell. Before anyone could react, he was rocketing down a sheer face towards a cliff. So he's like do 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 do, do, do. My feet are cold. Hey, my hat! Oh fuck! He's rocketing down a cliff. He tries to jam his head and hands into the rocks to stop him. But all that got him was cock-slapped around and broken fingers. Think about that, he's falling and it's such a light, he goes from do 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 to now I, you know, the best option in my life right now is to try to jam my head into a crevice to stop myself from falling. But before the pain could even register, he was airborne. Heim's actual flight Covered 65 feet and lasted no more than a few seconds. But that wasn't his experience. The first thing Heim noticed was that he'd dropped into another dimension. His senses were exquisitely heightened, his vision panoramic. Time had slowed to a crawl. He could see his brother and friends and the horrified look on their faces. But as he explained later, he felt no anxiety, no trace of despair, rather calm seriousness profound acceptance and dominant mental quickness so he's falling off he's like goes from walking to now rocketing down the mountain and then whoosh, he's airborne he just launched himself off of, off of the mega ramp and he's just saying like you know what would you on paper predict that that consciousness to feel like oh god damn it oh fucking goddamn it fuck maybe like that but he's saying uh-uh saying he'd never felt more clear-headed time yeah that, that that didn't even mean anything that was a tiny little crawl with his life unfolding in slow motion he had to survey the territory and begin making rescue plans okay well Hmm, looks like I'm going to fall over here. My brothers are going to have to go around that way. Um, okay, let me think through, like, what if I just have, like, a small injury? Like, I could probably climb back. Okay, if I have a medium injury, like, they're going to have to get me. If I have a massive injury, like, fuck, man, okay, I'm probably going to die within eight hours. Like, how quickly can, can we get home? Then he realized, fuck, there's no chance I survive this. But he continues going through all these calculations as he's he's flying in the air in a split second. You know he's supposed to give a lecture at oxford his first lecture and for a british person dude that's like getting invited to to the sig sour training academy now he's gonna have to find a substitute maybe he should take his glasses off before he crashes and on and on i heard a dull thud and my fall was over haim survived the impact but the mystery never left him panoramic vision time dilation, deep attraction to firearms. None of this made any sense. He was a scientist by training, but his experiences seemed beyond the realm of reason. And not knowing what else to do, he hunted down 32 other people who had survived near fatal falls, and a staggering 95% of them reported similar anomalous events. Heim's work marks the first scientific investigation in the fact that high-risk activities can profoundly alter consciousness and significantly enhance mental abilities. So he just experienced this insanity. And he's like, I gotta go talk to other people who had this happen. Like, is it just me? Am I, am I a god? Or is this is the this thing? And he talked to all these people and they're like, hey, buddy, yeah, I haven't told anybody about that, but like, mm-hmm, yep, yep, I actually got my PhD in three seconds as I was falling off a cliff. Weird. And and this isn't the same as near-death experiences, uh, Mr. Kotler, make sure to point out, because like, let's say you get hit by a bus and then everyone's poking your body and you're watching them poke your body and then all of a sudden, like, you come back to life because, you know, you got rejected for hell for not being jacked enough. This is a key detail here, is that a lot of these people actually weren't in danger they just thought they were so like they slipped and fell and they're falling and then like their foot catches in a rope and they're okay but they still have the same experience meaning it's not like it's not related to being critically injured it's like it's related to perception and these experiences seemed mystical and if it, you know if somebody was about to die okay maybe it was god but if it's perception and psychology if that was the triggers, like if you can just think your way into it, even if you're just wrong and it's by accident, then the puzzle was more physiological than paranormal. And that opened the door to considerably considerably more interesting possibilities. At about the same time, there was some bitch named William James who was like a consciousness researcher, AKA just doing a shitload of drugs and writing in his journal. But he he tried all types of psychedelic, mystical experiences. Um, He studied Albert Heim, and he realized all these experiences seemed to share a common thread, all variations on the same theme that Heim initially reported. James, he also noted two more things, uh, is that these experiences were profound. You know, people were radically different on the other side, happier, more contented. And second, high-risk adventure tended to amplify not only mental performance but physical performance as well so he's you know he's taking all these drugs he's going to these like like hot breathing sessions he's getting you know in flotation tanks i'm sure but he's also studying people who had these experiences and he realizes that like a if you have it you come back better and b that danger seems to be related And this led James to the conclusion, most people live in a very restricted circle of their potential being. They make use of a very small portion of their possible consciousness and of their souls, resources and tools in general. Much like a man who out of his whole organism should get in the habit of moving only his little finger. But we don't have to stay that way. Apply the requisite stimulus and here we are in flow. Well, what is the stimulus? Well, well, apparently like psychedelic drugs really work, um, but if it's truly a question of unlocking hidden abilities, James agrees with Albert Heim. High-risk activity seems like the most likely path. Great emergencies and crises show us how much greater our vital resources are than we had supposed. Out of all this work emerged one of history's stranger movements, the epic quest to hack ultimate human performance, to decode the mysteries of the zone. Adventurers, artists, academics, outcasts, mavericks, scientists, psychedelic enthusiasts, special operators, CEOs, and now us. Yet, out of the hodgepodge, for reasons that comprise the bulk of this book, action and adventure sports athletes have become the most advanced practitioners of this art an elite cadre of zone hacker masters of the state known as Flow. So what he's saying is that Albert Heim was the first person to actually study this. And then that bitch, William James, who's like a drug addict, but also like did do lab reports, he also studied it. And they were like, huh, this seems like, this seems like a thing and it seems related to danger. But you know, of all the people in the fucking world who've tried to study this and as history has progressed, you know, there's been a lot. The best, the masters, the ones who know the most about the zone are the action and adventure sports athletes. And Danny Way, he's not done. But if you want to hear what he does, when he comes back three weeks later and does some crazy shit, and then if you want to walk into more examples of the zone, a full treatise on how to build flow. How flow matters, how you can harness flow, and then ultimately drive yourself to that 400x level performance that action and adventure sports athletes have. If you want that, you're gonna have to tune in next time on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Thank you, thank you very much. And that's my pretez. Is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at curiouslydisagreeable.com. The Troy Hollings on Instagram or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.